There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Twilight Zone that we'll be discussing tonight is important because it introduces us to another very important man in the Twilight Zone and that's Richard Matheson. Of course he's the author of many great stories, I guess one of the most famous ones is I Am Legend and that inspired things like Night of the Living Dead and has been adapted for three films in its, in its own right. But Matheson's contribution to this episode is actually quite small compared to what's to come down the line. And When the Sky Was Opened is based on a short story by Matheson called Disappearing Act. And while Matheson did actually write Twilight Zone episodes, Rod Serling actually adapted this one himself from Matheson's story. But I think maybe adapted is perhaps too strong a word. I think to say it was inspired by Disappearing Act is probably more fitting. Now it is credited as an adaption because Sailing did actually buy the rights to the story and Richard Matheson said of it, actually Disappearing Act and Third from the Sun are the only two stories I sold them for many years because I wanted to do original teleplays and hold on to my stories. Then later on I sold some of the stories because all my early scripts if you notice are originals. I think if it was filmed as written it would be great, but there was no point in trying to adapt it personally because I didn't own it. I sold the story to the Twilight Zone, I would have liked to adapt it myself. And it is a very different story by the time it arrives on screen. The characters are different not only in name but their whole life situation. In Sailing's adaption he's dealing with astronauts, but in the original short story we meet a writer who's leading a very troubled life. He's struggling to get work, so he's in constant financial trouble. And he's recently had an affair, so that's weighing on him heavily. He's he's kind of used that as a little escape from his troubled life, that experience, that thrill of a new relationship, you know, the discovery. So for reasons we'll touch on later, people start to disappear from his life. But this is actually the only detail between the two stories that's the same. And when asked about the adaption, Richard Matheson said, My feeling about it is the same as my feeling about the second version of my novel, I Am Legend. It's so far removed that there's nothing to judge by. So two very different stories with the same central concept, and I have read Disappearing Act. But for now, let's discuss tonight's Twilight Zone episode, and when the sky was opened. Her name, X-20. Her type, an experimental interceptor. Recent history, a crash landing in the Mojave Desert after a 31-hour flight 900 miles into space. Incidental data, the ship with the men who flew her disappeared from the radar screen for 24 hours. 
But the shrouds that cover mysteries are not always made out of a tarpaulin, as this man will soon find out on the other side of a hospital door. First broadcast on the 12th of November 1959, and directed by Douglas Hayes. Now, Hayes, again, someone who directed more than one Twilight Zone episode. He also directed Eye of the Beholder and Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room. And as we've said, the teleplay written by Rod Serling based on Disappearing Act by Richard Matheson. So Rod Serling introduces us to the X-20, a, a kind of space shuttle, if you will. And it instantly puts us in a kind of very 50s science fiction kind of place. You know, a lot of things were X in those days, X minus one, Dimension X. But it's also based in fact because the US were developing a craft called the X-20 Dynamic Saurer or Dinosaur at the time. So Sailing actually based it on that. And in an early draft of the script, there was an extra scene in it. And this is a direct quote from the book, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. An early draft of the script opened with the shrouded aircraft having just been covered with a tarpaulin, part of a cracked wing and a bent tail protruding, the wing bearing the remnants of an Air Force star. An Air Force officer questions an investigator. The investigator says the aircraft came in on her belly at something close to 300 miles an hour, which is why the wing looked the way it did. The officer explains the plane was tracked on radar for the first couple of hours and then disappeared for 24 hours. Next, there was an explosion on the desert and it was the aircraft. None of the crew remembers anything about the landing, possibly having blacked out during re-entry into the atmosphere. So that was a scene that was written but never actually filmed. Now Lieutenant Forbes, played by Rod Taylor, is one of the crew of that ship and he visits his friend, Major William Gart, played by Jim Hutton, in hospital. Now Forbes looks extremely worried, very intense and preoccupied, and he's visited his friend because he needs some questions answered. At 9.30 yesterday morning, I walked out of here. Didn't I? Yeah, about that time, I guess. Who did I walk up with? Well, nobody was with you. That's what I mean. You say nobody. What's that say? Go ahead, tell me, what's it say? Well, in effect, it says those two intrepid voyagers into the unknown returned from the unknown in a slightly dented aircraft. What about the picture? Who's in the picture? Colonel Clegg Forbes and Major William Gart taken just before their historic flight that ended in mysterious disappearance and crash. Now in this scene we see a newspaper and it shows both of those two gentlemen on the front page the story of their ship coming back and so on. And the newspaper is going to become a recurring prop in the episode, a kind of indicator of how the situation for these pilots advances. That's what you remember, huh? You and me and the X-20 taking off. About four hours up we black out. And 24 hours later, we end up in a crashed aircraft in the desert. We don't know where we've been or what's happened. Is that right? That's right. Oh, well, now, what's the matter? Isn't that right? Bill, there were three of us in that aircraft. You and me 
and a colonel named Harrington. Now, the thing is, William Gott doesn't remember Harrington. He remembers it as a two-man flight. And as Lieutenant Forbes tries to tell him to desperately remind him of what happened on that previous day, the episode shifts into flashback. And it's here that we see the three of them together at the hospital. You know, they're very rambunctious and I guess a little stereotypical of the kind of depiction of those happy-go-lucky, cheeky-chappy soldiers that you see in, you know, films at the time. Oh, I'm going to fix this baby's wagon. I'm going to tell the medics that he's a very sick cookie and ought to be kept under observation for another seven years. And every Saturday night, Major Gart, the Colonel and I are going to phone you from whatever bar we happen to be in at the time, and if you're nice. If you are real nice. We'll even let you talk to our women. <laughs> Will you come on already? I, I, I just can't stand these long goodbyes. So Harrington and Forbes hit the town. They go to a bar for a few drinks, and they're like the local celebrities, the... The bartender tells them that their money's no good here and the pretty girl at the bar that Forbes sidles over to is suitably impressed and so on. And it's a good time so far, but as time goes on, something strange starts to happen to Harrington as he goes to light a cigarette. There's a kind of hint that perhaps he looks into the mirror behind the bar and can't see his own reflection. And then he comes over all faint. Oh, my cigarette. I got a very funny feeling. Whew, I never felt anything like this before. What kind of feeling? It's like I didn't belong here. Like if I was to let myself go, I'd... You'd, you'd what? Like I'd disappear. Now I love that, the idea that someone needs to keep concentrating to keep on existing and not just blinking out of existence. I guess like in the episode Perchance to Dream where Edward Hall was fighting off sleep. It's fighting a battle that you're never going to win because you'll always need to sleep or in Harrington's case he's going to get distracted by something. You can't keep up that level of concentration forever. You'll get worn down eventually. And eventually that is what happens. Harrington's existence just gets snuffed out. It's all part of this feeling. This feeling that I shouldn't be here. That none of us should be here. It's as if... As if what? As if maybe we shouldn't have come back from that flight at all. Maybe somebody, something, made a mistake and let us get through we shouldn't have. Maybe someone or something made a mistake and let us get through when we shouldn't have. Now that's an important line because it's going to be important later on when we talk about one major criticism that Sailing got for this episode. It's a very vague thing, isn't it? It's someone or something. Is it aliens? Is it God? Do we really need to know? I, I think that's something we all need to decide for ourselves because to some extent the success of the episode hinges on it. But like I say, we'll get to that later. But when Forbes leaves Harrington in the phone booth to go and get him a drink, that's when the newspaper comes back into play. At the start of the flashback, we saw that all three men were on the front cover of the newspaper. But now it's only two. And when Forbes goes back to the phone booth, Harrington is gone. But not only is he gone, but nobody in the bar can remember him ever being there. So now it's all clear. Now we know why Forbes was in such a state at the start of the episode. 
this thing has happened and nobody else knows about it. No one else remembers Harrington. And this is something that Rod Sailing describes as one of the scariest things in the world. Not just the unknown, but the unknown working on you, but you can't explain it to anyone else. So this is really progressing now. Forbes' girlfriend doesn't remember Harrington. His superior from the base doesn't remember Harrington. So Forbes really is on his own. I don't know. I swear to God, I don't know. Yes? Put him on. Hello, General? This is Clegg Forbes, sir. I'm terribly sorry to call you this hour of the morning, sir. Thank you, sir. General, it's about Ed Harrington. Ed Harrington, sir. You, you remember, Ed. We're in your wing at the field, sir. We're with you 19, 20 months, sir. Harrington, sir. Ed Harrington! Ed Harrington! Why does anybody remember me? Now, Forbes is cracking up. He goes to the bar where Harrington disappeared, and the rage and frustration he's been feeling up until now, up until this point, just reaches fever pitch, and he crashes through the glass door of the bar. Now this moment wasn't actually in the script, it's not written by Rod Serling. The director Douglas Hayes said, Now it's not in the script, but because Rod encouraged me to do things like that, I simply had him walk through the glass door, sort of spin and crash through it into the bar. It was an unexpected entrance and Rod Serling liked it very much. It kind of takes the fight out of Forbes for a moment, it's a... Uh, it's a very intense performance by the actor Rod Taylor and I like it a lot, he's, he's actually an Australian actor, I think he'd been working in the US for about 5 years at this point, and I've always enjoyed his presence on screen, I have a lot of love for his performance in the H.G. Wells story The Time Machine, and he also appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, which unfortunately has been sitting on my to watch pal for too long now and they even gave him a, a part in a low budget kind of riff on the birds called core back in 2007 i i don't really know whether that's any good to be honest but if if the imdb rating is anything to go by then probably not strangely though he also appeared in the quentin tarantino film inglorious bastards playing winston churchill which kind of blew my mind a little bit when I read that because I have seen the film but I just never put two and two together. He's so young and handsome in this that that's the way you always imagine him. And he kind of reminds me of a young Robin Williams. He does actually do a commentary for the episode on the DVD and it's not the most informative of commentaries. I'm not sure he really gets what he's supposed to be there for but you know what, he's he's a lovely gentleman and it's just kind of nice to get to spend that time with him again. So we flash forward again to Forbes and William Gart back in Gart's hotel room and we get another confirmation that Gart doesn't remember Harrington but the fight's gone out of Forbes now and he has this kind of acceptance and understanding now. He's been yanked out of here. He's been taken away. He told me, remember? He told me, maybe. Maybe somebody or... or something... made a mistake. Let us get through when we shouldn't have gotten through. 
Got to come back to get us. Somebody up there. Oh, Bill. This is weird. It's just plain weird. Like I just don't belong. I like this moment. It's quite unsettling and this kind of acceptance that Forbes has gives way to a kind of euphoria. And this is another little flourish by Douglas Hayes. He said, Initially Rod's disappearance or the feeling that he was going was written as a very painful experience, but I decided to make it a very euphoric experience. Instead of playing it for terror or agony, everything had been fear up until then. Fear of disappearance, fear of the unknown and so forth. I said to Rod Taylor, Let's play this as if this is the most marvellous thing that's ever happened. We took an angle on him, and we lowered the camera as he was talking, so the effect was that he seemed to be rising while he was talking. But eventually this euphoria does lead to terror again. Oh no! Oh no! I don't want this to happen! Phil, I don't want it to happen! I don't want it to happen! You shouldn't be out of bed. Why, if the doctor could... Somebody's got to help him. Colonel Forbes, somebody's got to help him right away. Who? Colonel Forbes! Forbes runs out of the door and Gott follows him immediately. And it's a long corridor, far too long for Forbes to have ran down before Gott came out. But when Gott does come out, Forbes is gone. Now it's Gott's turn and it's rather quick this time the way he disappears. There's an extra feature on the DVD where Sailing is at a college or something and he's talking about this episode and if you haven't listened to one of these, like the one he did for Walking Distance, I, I really recommend him because he's such a great speaker and and basically he says if we need a reason for God's disappearance to be so quick, it's probably because he has no anchors in this world now, whereas Forbes had Harrington and Gart initially and then just Gart. Now Garth has nobody left who was on the craft with him, so his disappearance is much quicker. And then soon after we see that the hospital room is completely empty, and as far as anyone remembers, these men never existed. I think this is another really strong episode, personally. For a sailing episode, and let's face it, it is a sailing episode, despite the fact that it was from a Richard Matheson story. It seems to have a real pace to it, it's... It is all talking, but it does build up ahead of steam as it goes, and I think a lot of that is due to Rod Taylor and how he built up that intensity. But there's little in the way of the kind of sermonising that Sailing often did. Now, I'm not saying there's no subtext here, I'm not saying that at all. I, I personally think that my level of criticism is quite a surface level of criticism, if you like. I don't tend to get too deep under the skin of what some episodes are about. I think maybe books like Douglas Brody's book, Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, is very good for that kind of analysis. But the thing is, Sailing often wears the message of the episode on his sleeve, where the characters will launch into one of these long monologues, or even in his open and closing narration, he will, you know, tell you what things are all about in not too veiled a fashion. 
But in this episode there's not so much of that kind of thing, like I say I'm not saying there's no subtext there but I just think that Serling looked at the story he was telling and he made the judgement that maybe there wasn't a place for that and I think it works really well. I think the cast is really strong, the, the three men have a real great chemistry and I don't think there's a weak link there. But overall I think it's, it's amazing when you think about this episode that it builds all this up purely by performance. There's not one special effect in the piece that I can recall except maybe some lighting. There isn't even a disappearing effect when the men disappear and story-wise there's nothing driving the whole thing. There's no aliens, there's no godlike entity. It's just absolutely nothing. It's purely down to the reactions of the three men. So if we go back to the question, do you think that there needs to be some kind of explanation to why these men are disappearing? This is a direct quote from the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zickrey. He says, And when the sky was opened is a flawed episode, however, and this flaw lies in its resolution. Like where is everybody, it sets up the question, what is going on here, then fails to satisfactorily answer it. In this case, an answer isn't even attempted. The astronauts are simply yanked out of existence with no explanation at all. Like an old vaudevillian getting the hook from a stagehand in the wings. Now Douglas Brody in Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone calls it a strength. And this is a direct quote from that book. He says, The ship too has been drawn back to a celestial doorway. And he's referring there to obviously at the end not only have all the men disappeared, but the ship has disappeared too. And he goes on to say, What does the episode mean? The beauty of the piece derives from the impossibility of easily answering that. This is an oblique drama about essence and existence. So two different opinions there on the strength of the episode from you know, two important commentators on the Twilight Zone. But Rod Sailing says that he feels there's a willing suspension of disbelief with the audience of the show, and that all he needs is for one person to say that someone or something thinks that they shouldn't have come back and that's enough. And I think this ties in quite well with the differences between the short story and the episode itself, because Sailing said about the story, I felt there was no rationale there. At least if I'm dealing in outer space, I can say something or someone. And if you listen to that track on the DVD that I mentioned earlier, he further enforces that he felt that in the short story there was absolutely nothing. Now, he's kind of right. The main character doesn't breach any boundaries or anything like that, but there is a moment of frustration where he kind of cries out to the universe. It's at a point when all the bad things in life start to to come to a head and this is a passage from that story disappearing act where the main character says who cares I'm sick of it all anyway bills bills writing writing failures 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 and little old life dribbling on building up its beautiful brain-busting complexities like an idiot with blocks you who run the world who spin the universe if does anybody listening to me make the world simpler? So he cries out and again something listens but we don't know who or what it is. In this sort of debate I think I have to side with Sailing and Brody on this one. I think 
Not only is the fact that we don't know what's causing this not an issue, I think it's the episode's great strength. I, I don't always subscribe to the what you don't see is the scariest point of view, but in this case I think it works perfectly. You can make up your own mind on this one. These men either went somewhere that they weren't supposed to go, or they lived when they were supposed to die. It could be an alien that caused this, it could be God, it could be the universe. And the episode doesn't give us that answer, it's all up to you. Once upon a time there was a man named Harrington, a man named Forbes, a man named Gart. They used to exist, but don't any longer. Someone or something took them somewhere. At least they are no longer a part of the memory of man. And as to the X-20 supposed to be housed here in this hangar, this too does not exist. And if any of you have any questions concerning an aircraft and three men who flew her, speak softly of them, and only in the Twilight Zone. So another strong episode, I think, and the tenth story that we've tackled in the podcast, so only another 140 or so to go, so I hope you're all in for the long haul. But I think that it's important at this point that I give credit where it's due to the people who probably make this podcast possible. Now, obviously, all the opinion is my own, but, you know, I I didn't want this to be a podcast where I just come on and say what I think of the episode. I wanted it to be a bit more meat to it, a bit of substance in terms of trivia and so on. So I need to give credit to the books that I, I refer to when I'm doing my research and... You know, I might be putting myself out of a job here, but I think it's important that I do mention them. I think, of course, most people are going to be familiar with The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zickery. It got given away with the, the first DVD box set, so I imagine this is probably the one that most people will own. I think it's, you know, a decent sort of mixture of a bit of trivia and, you know, a bit of opinion by Zickery. So it's it's a good quick reference guide, I think. The next one I use is Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone, the 50th anniversary tribute, and that's by Carol Serling and Douglas Brody. And that's the one that's not really dealing in facts and so on. It's all about the the more philosophical kind of things, the subtext and so on. And I don't always agree with Douglas Brody. Um, and like I say, I'm very much a surface kind of critic, I suppose. But but what I find this book useful for is if I'm really maybe struggling to get a handle on, on something in the episode. You know, I'm processing my own thoughts and he will, you know, he will write his essays and, and talk about the subtext of these episodes. And even though I might not always d- agree, it kind of gives me something to work off because... By not agreeing with him, I'm sort of solidifying my own point of view. So it's a good book. It's a good book. I, I enjoyed dipping into that one. Another really lovely looking book that I haven't really referred to much. I think only in the the first episode where we talked about Where Is Everybody. It's called Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. And it's mainly made up of interviews and a few essays about the Twilight Zone. And it's a beautiful book. Very, you know, handsome. There's some great images in there. And that's by a gentleman called Stuart T. Stanyard. So again, that's a high recommendation. I I don't think that one's too expensive either. You can pick that up very reasonably. 
but I think the one book above them all that really makes this possible is The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. Now, if you're only ever going to buy one Twilight Zone book, this is probably the one to get. There are more facts in there than I would ever put in the podcast. You know, there's uh, budget and, and so on. I'm not going to sit here quoting you know facts and figures about numbers and things like that to you but you know it's it's interesting to look at these things from time to time and it's all there in that book if you want to so that's a high recommendation too okay some more itunes reviews to to be thankful for again stateside you know i'm really pleased that the podcast goes down well over in the states with it being an american show so i'm really appreciative of that 87 James, nice short little review. I don't usually read them, but I'll read this one. All I can say is keep them coming, he says, so I will, thank you. And Plastic Plastic, thank you again. Great review there, much appreciated. And one from a couple of days ago, uh, a really nice one from Dusty Grimm, so thank you, Dusty. Like I say, all, all of these reviews help get the podcast out there and noticed, so I appreciate everyone taking the time to do that. Now, speaking of iTunes reviews, uh, a while ago I spoke about a gentleman by the name of Sam Cott, who left a really nice review. Now, going forward, if if anyone comments on episodes on the twilightzonepodcast.com, hopefully that'll pick up over time and, you know, that'll build up, get a bit of discussion going there. Um, so, you know, occasionally I might read out bits and pieces. I'll usually let them be their own thing, you know. But I think there is a lot of good points in, in what Sam Cott says in this post. So I'm going to read it out and I'll tell you why I appreciate this this kind of post. I mean, like I said, I, I, I think I'm very surface critic, to be honest. So, But there's so much more in the Twilight Zone and there's room for a lot of different opinions. And like I say, I'm quite fallible. There's, there's things that I miss or... You know, interpret one way and someone else might interpret them the other way. And I think Sam Cott's made a great point here, so I'm going to read it out. He's talking about the episode Judgment Night. And he says, Tom, I enjoyed your analysis as usual. I understand your point about Lieutenant Muller's excessive and convenient moral speech to Lancer. I'll offer another perspective. Much of Lancer's punishment is tailor-made and didn't actually happen. The speech is part of the show, as it were and it didn't occur while Lancer was alive on the U-boat. The speech, quite literally, adds poetic justice to Lancer's punishment. The speech reminds Lancer that his actions were a wanton attack rather than a necessity of war, and it informs him that his punishment is an eternally repeating cycle rather than some nightmare from which he might awaken. Note the look of sheer terror on Lancer's face at the conclusion of Muller's speech when he says, We could die a hundred million times. We'd ride the ghost of that ship every night. Every night for eternity. Lancer's expression is in stark contrast to his mocking indifference just a moment before. And it signifies that he fully comprehends what this morality play is all about. This final and complete comprehension is a necessary and fitting part of Lancer's punishment. Even if it is quite unnecessary for the audience as you point out. To put a Dickensian twist on it, if Lancer is a most evil Scrooge, Muller represents the ghost of Christmas past, present and future without offering any chance of redemption. 
Another interesting part of the speech is Muller's reference to God and Lancer's obvious disdain for religion and morality as the sentiments of an old woman. This implies that the source of morality is God and that Lancer is an immoral atheist. I am myself an atheist and I consider myself to be a very moral one, thank you very much. But I'm accustomed to such notions about morality and atheism and I forgive sailing. One final point. You mentioned that Muller talked to Lancer about women and children, but in fact he expressed misgivings about killing men and women without warning. Muller didn't say anything about children, which was odd. And it was also odd that he belaboured the point about warning them. Perhaps he meant to say that they should have offered the defenceless civilians the opportunity to surrender. So why didn't he just say that? Keep up the good work, Tom. I look forward to each of your episodes. Thanks, Sam Cott. Nothing to say there. I think is a great point, well made. So, thank you for thank you for putting that on the site. And as always, if anyone wants to comment on any episodes, thetwilightzonepodcast.com. Okay, that's all from me. I think just a final reminder that thetwilightzonepodcast.com has expanded a little. We're under the umbrella of dimensionxradio.com. That's a site that I've launched. That it's going to be. A bit easier to leave comments on you don't actually have to sign up anymore you can just go on there and, and put your comments and also added a bit more content now i'm not particularly going to be writing articles on the site but the space there if you know if indeed that ever happens i know chris who does the night gallery podcast is a very talented writer so he might you know if he ever wants to put any thoughts out there and i guess anyone out there you know if if you have a an article that you've written that you'd like us to put up then find me an email you know feedback at twilightzonepodcast.com and we'll talk about it and also like i say there's going to be the old time radio shows dimension x x minus one and suspense going on the on the site too excellent radio shows from america back in the 50s so so check them out okay that's all from me and next time we'll be discussing what you need bye bye